My prayer is that that's going to be your experience today, is that you're going to be comforted uh, by the Word of God as we study and, um, and enjoy fellowship together. A uh, couple of things that I just want to ask you to do for me, if you would, and I, I wish I could give you more detail, but I'm just asking you as a church to be praying uh, because God is opening up more opportunities for us to impact our community with the gospel, and uh, they're very significant ways and, um, and kind of frontline ways, and we're working on those things, and they're kind of developing, and we're working with people that are outside the church and seeing all that kind of come to pass, so if you could just pray for that, that would mean a lot. We've actually got several different things that are happening simultaneously um, that, uh, that I'll be able to share with you probably in the next couple of weeks, but it's going to involve our partnership, a partnership with the Bible College uh, and the students that are full-time students here. It's going to involve partnership with the U-Turn guys. It's going to be really exciting. So I'm just asking you, at least for the time being, even with that little bit of information, if you could just be praying uh, that God will uh, guide us and, uh, and put this whole thing together. So it's, it's, it's going to be good, though. It's going to be a blessing. Okay, let's turn to the book of Acts. We're continuing our, continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 20, and I've entitled the message Humpty Dumpty Ministry, which uh, should become apparent why, <laughs> why I gave it such an interesting uh, children's rhymes uh, title this morning. But I want to read the first 12 verses, and then we'll spend the balance of our time considering its application uh, to our lives today. Just to uh, uh, review briefly, uh, in our last study last week, Paul was in Ephesus and there was a major riot that broke out and, uh, and uh, Gaius and Aristarchus were taken, in essence, prisoner, uh, taken into the theater and there was, they basically wanted to kill these men. They really wanted Paul and uh, they wanted to do away with Paul. But by the intervention of God through actually an unbelieving official, uh, Paul was delivered, rescued, and the entire ministry in Ephesus was given uh, room to breathe and to continue growing as it did and continue to do so for, uh, for many years without, uh, without any kind of uh, violation or interference from either government or from the Jews. And so we find ourselves picking up this text following this riot uh, in chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus uh, from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking again until daylight, he left, and the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we're asking today as we study it that you might 
uh, teach us, Lord. We're so hungry, Lord. We, we surrender everything to you, God, everything that we understand and know to be our life. God, we give to you, and we, we're eager to grow. We're eager to learn. We want to put into practice the things that your word teaches through this passage. And God, we're asking for your spirit to move among us. A, a lot more has to happen than simply my teaching. If anything of value is gonna happen, it has to be you. It has to be all you. And so God, by your spirit, work in us, through us, touch us, move us, transform us. And God, may the glory and the honor be yours this morning as a result of what you do here today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Humpty Dumpty, you know it, it's a children's rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a, all the king's horses and all the king's couldn't put Humpty together again. So we know that Humpty Dumpty and this little nursery rhyme, if, if you've ever read the book to your children or, or had a little illustrated version of it, it's always got this, this big goofy egg, right? With these little spindly legs and spindly arms and this little beanie cap, you know? And he ends up falling off and he's in a, in a million pieces on the ground and all the king's horses and all the king's men, they're all just kind of standing around not sure what to do. Interestingly, uh, there's nothing about an egg in the original version. And, um, and that was actually an addition far later that was added for the amusement of children. But it really had to do with a cannon uh, during the English Civil War in the 16th century. And it was called Humpty Dumpty. And it was on the wall of this, of this barricaded fortress. And it was so formidable and so big uh, that the invading armies had a very difficult time surmounting it. Until one day, one of their own cannon fire just happened to hit right below the wall of Humpty Dumpty. And Humpty Dumpty, this massive cannon came tumbling down off of this wall, crashing and shattering at the bottom of this cliff. And, uh, and the story goes that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And so the reason that I've, um, I've uh, decided on that title is because I, the first thing I thought of when I thought of Eutychus falling out of this window is Humpty Dumpty. How do you put a guy back together from a third story fall? We'll talk about that a little bit in a few moments. But more pointedly is how do you help a man or woman whose life is shattered by the sin of life and by being sinned against in the world and by making bad decisions and, you know, just kind of living, you know? How do we take our shattered experiences, which we all have, and find wholeness? And I would suggest to you that most of us along the way have tried to get all the king's horses and all the king's men. I mean, we'll resource anybody, any, anything we can to try to put our little world back together again but we find ourselves failing and, and having a great struggle. And the point really I think of this story is not so much about a cannon or about an egg you know, uh, man, but I think it's really ultimately, at least for us as an application, it's about how does a Christian or let's say even an unbeliever, how do people put their lives back together again? How do you recover from the shattering experiences that you've had in life? And I think if, if we don't get anything else out of this text today, it's that God can put your life back together. God can do what's impossible for man. What's impossible for all the king's horses and all the king's men is not impossible for God. For God, it's easy. It's always easy. But the main thing is, is that he's waiting for someone to come to him and said, say, would you put my life back together again? And so we find this text is, uh, is I think, going to be very interesting. I think we're going to learn a lot along the way. Uh, but it begins in verse 1, following this riot uh, of this persecution that Paul was facing, uh, where they were trying to kill him. Now, 
Paul knows as he's preparing to leave that these believers who just went through this very, very traumatic experience uh, the day or so before, he's about to leave and to make his way to Jerusalem. But before he leaves, he wants to bring peace and some calmness to these new believers who are just kind of like blown away and their fearsome leader, Paul, is about to leave and now they're gonna be facing these very same crowds. And so it's interesting what Paul does in verse one. It says he encouraged the disciples. The word is parakaleo. It means to exhort or to comfort or to come alongside. That's actually what it means. It's someone that's called alongside of another person. Para means alongside of, kaleo means to call. Someone that's called alongside of another person during a time of need. And so Paul sensed this distress of this young body of Christians and he comes alongside of them one last time to build them up in their faith. Now it's kind of interesting because in this short passage of scripture in four verses, this word is used four times, parakaleo, coming alongside, comforting, encouraging, giving strength to another person. It's mentioned 22 times in the book of Acts alone and almost always being used by the disciples or by someone of leadership that's coming alongside and strengthening and comforting and encouraging. And uh, you know, just as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking just hearing the words themselves are encouraging to me. Comforting, encouraging, strengthening, edifying. Those words are, are valuable and meaningful for us because why? We, because we all face shattering experiences in life. We face distress and discomfort and uncertainty. We face financial problems and marriage problems and problems with kids, problems with neighbors, problems with family. And, and we desire and really long for the comfort of God and the encouragement of God along with the encouragement and comfort of other people. And so Paul comes along and does this for the church in, uh, in Ephesus. Now, I, I wanna make a point here that that really every believer is called to experience this and also to share this with one another, this lifestyle of parakaleo, of coming alongside one another with these kind of words of comfort. In fact, uh, there's a very heavy emphasis on it in the Bible, uh, and I'll give you two passages, uh, Hebrews 3.13, where the writer says that we are to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Well. That means today is a day to do it. It's you have full permission from the Bible to encourage each other today. Uh, you can't do it tomorrow today, but you can do it tomorrow because tomorrow will be today tomorrow. But every day that you do it, you can do it. If as long as it's called today, you have permission to be a, a person that does this work of parakaleo, coming alongside and encouraging and blessing and exhorting. Hebrews 10, uh, 24 and 25, and I'll just read the last part. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other, parakaleo, as long as it's called today, and all the more as you see the day approaching, and he's referring to the second coming of Christ. In other words, the writer is saying, keep reminding each other that this is almost over. Keep reminding each other that we have an inheritance in heaven waiting us. Keep in mind that the sacrifices that we make to serve the Lord are gonna be so valuable and worthwhile, not only here, but in the kingdom to come. Keep reminding each other that you don't have to fight sin forever. It will end and God is going to deliver us and give us new bodies. Don't, don't forget to remind each other of these great treasures and riches that we have in Christ to keep our eyes fixed on the future, not to live our lives for the present only, but to live for eternity. 
And so we are to encourage each other. Why? Because Satan is just constantly discouraging us. He, you know, it's like, is it just him or is there other people involved too? It's like even when somebody's trying to give a compliment, they have to kind of twist it and, and put, you know, some kind of a weird thing on it to make you go, was that a compliment or was that, or was that an insult, you know? We deal with that constantly. And then we've got our own mind telling us, right? Our own, you know, thoughts go through our head of we're, we're failures, we're miserable, we're wretched, you know, we'll never get it, we'll never figure this out, no one's ever going to love me, no one's ever going to like me, you know, I'm never going to have a good job, I'm never going to be able to have this or do that or whatever it is. And so we just pile all this stuff on ourselves and we beat up on ourselves and other people beat up on us. And what Paul is saying is that in the midst of the body of Christ, there has to be a completely different lifestyle a lifestyle of encouragement, a lifestyle of comforting. Man, do we know we're bad? Is there anybody here that doesn't know that they've blown it this week? We already know. You don't need to come here to tell me you're bad. You're bad. You know, you know it. God knows it. And yet, because of the work of Christ, he's like, you're beautiful to me. And, and his words are words of exhortation and encouragement. And he's saying, come along. Keep going. You're almost home. We're almost there. Let me use you in these final hours, in these final days that we have on this planet to advance my cause. And he says, come along and be an encourager, a comforter, someone that exhorts people around you and gives them courage to keep moving forward. And so after doing this, he, he says his goodbyes to his, his disciples, and it's kind of lost in the English translation, uh, but the word is aspadzomai in the Greek, and it means to embrace, and it actually means more than that. I mean, this is real affection. This isn't, you know, like the, the compulsory, you know, hi, nice to see you, and all that. But this is like, man, he's just, I love you guys. That's what he's saying. He's saying to, this, to the church in Ephesus. In fact, you know, something interesting, you've got this guy, I, I look at Paul, and I think about Paul, and I... Before he came to Christ, I just imagined him as very exacting, uh, very hard, very uh, demanding of himself and other people, the kind of guy that would just make you feel about this big just being in his presence because he was just so far ahead. I mean, he was just so far ahead in so many arenas in life. And, and he wanted to run with the big boys and, and you get around him and you just feel like he's not gonna wanna run with me. And now, having been transformed by the work of God and entering into this community of encouragement and exhortation, this lifestyle of parakaleo, he comes to them and he not only encourages them, but he embraces them as, as he leaves. And at the end of every one of Paul's epistles, not all of them, but most of them, he says to the church, greet one another with a holy kiss. I just, you know, Paul and kissing just don't seem to, somehow they just, you know, maybe John or maybe Timothy, but Paul is just like, you know, he's just gnarly and all curled up and, you know, he's got scars all over him. It's like, you know, I just, I don't know. I just, <laughs> and his personality and everything, it just doesn't fit with him, you know? But here's this man that's been transformed on the inside, no matter what he looks like on the outside, and there's this deep love for people. And he says, I can't be there to do this. Would you greet one another for me with just this, tremendous tenderness and care for one another. Church, that's what we're called to. That's the kind of place this body is to be, a place of mutual encouragement and a place of love. There's not a person here, not one man or woman or young person here that couldn't use some encouragement today. Not one. Not one man or woman that wouldn't be blessed if they could experience the enfolding arms of Christ's love through another person. And that's what we have to offer each other. 
it's just an amazing life that God has given us and he just gives us permission to do it. You know, it's just like love each other, encourage each other. So Paul does all these things. And then uh, the Bible tells us that he set out for Macedonia on his way uh, to Syria. But before that happens, as he's traveling, and we don't have record of this in this particular text, but we do have record of it in uh, 2 Corinthians, that as Paul went along, he went to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth, all these places that he'd already been to in his first and second missionary journeys. And guess what he did when he got there? Just guess, wild guess. He encouraged the church. That's what he did again. You, you know, you know there's, I, am, I am all for teaching the word of God. I'm all for teaching on hell and teaching on damnation and the fiery flames that await those that don't receive Christ when it comes up in the scripture. But what I find Paul predominantly teaching the church is, is words of encouragement, pointing them back like a father, nurturing, edifying, strengthening, moving them toward uh, the, the Lord. Now he does very clearly rebuke the church. If you look at Corinthians, man, he's just all over the church. He does correct and rebuke and there's a time for that. But predominantly I think the church needs words of encouragement because my guess is that most of you, if not all of you, you wouldn't even be here if you didn't want God. You wouldn't be here if you didn't want to walk with the Lord. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have some hunger for spiritual things. And so you need encouragement. And that's what Paul did as he went from place to place encouraging the church. And again, he, um, he uses these very familiar terms in, in 1 Thessalonians. He says, I was like a father among you as a father deals with his own children. And this is what he said he did with the church, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Man, I just, doesn't it make you just wanna be around that guy? Be around a person like that? That's the kind of person Paul was. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that the Bible says that in essence, God is expecting a chain reaction to take place that began from the Father heart of God, because this is God's heart, comforting, encouraging, urging, exhorting, and then it came to Jesus and he modeled it for us in human flesh. And then when he left, he, he gave the mantle of this ministry of, of sharing the gospel, but also in the way it was shared of comforting and encouraging and urging, he gave it to the disciples. And then it came to Paul and then it went to Timothy and then it's gone down over the millennia to the saints of God and now it has been invested in us. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. You see where it starts? It starts from the heart of God, who comforts us in all of our troubles. Okay, so that's where we find our comfort. Are you shattered today? Are you broken today? God can comfort, God can help in your troubles. And then he says, there's a reason for this comfort, not only for ourselves, but it's a chain reaction that begins so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Do you see the chain reaction? God comforts us and then we comfort others. My guess is, is that just knowing most of you, is that you've been through some really challenging times. You've had some very difficult things happen in your life. And God has comforted you as you've allowed him to comfort you. And now that you've been comforted by God, there are people that are just entering in what you've left, that trouble. And they're coming into it and they're sitting near you. And, and they don't even really know who to turn to. And they're going through a crisis of, of, of enormous magnitude 
and they feel alone and challenged and uncertain. And God has comforted you, not only for your own benefit, but also so that you might comfort those who are in the same type of trouble that you were in, that you might encourage them, that you might comfort them, that you might urge them on. What would you urge them to do? Well, you would urge them to come to the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles. That's what the church can do for one another. And uh, so I wanna, I wanna encourage you to let the chain reaction take place. How has God blessed you? How has God rescued you? How has he encouraged you? And then ask, even before you come to church on Sunday, pray as a family, God use us. We've been through certain things. We haven't been through other things, but we've been through our share. If there's anyone that's at church today, God, that's struggling with this, would you connect us somehow miraculously and allow us to be an encouragement and a comfort to those uh, who need comforting today? And so we have this wonderful chain reaction that happens and so Paul models it and then of course the church takes on these characteristics and one of the things that Paul writes to the Colossian church is he says to them, you know, your faith and your love is being reported all over the world. It's a faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up, up for us in heaven. And so because of this work of God, we have hope and encouragement and as a result, we have something to offer other people. It can, you know, just your one little moment of without any jab or sideways weirdness to your comment, coming to a coworker and saying, you know, you did an excellent job. That was amazing. That was so, I, I'm so inspired by your example. I'd like to learn from you in this area. To tell your spouse, you know, you are an incredible, for my spouse, a wife, unbelievable. You know, I'm so proud of my wife and I, I like to tell her often. You know, when I was young, a young uh, husband, I thought, you know, I'm gonna run out of stuff to share. I mean, how many things I, you only know so much about your wife and then you're gonna run out, you know? And I think, uh-oh, you know, in like year two and three, it's like, I'm running out of stuff, God. You know, I gotta find some new stuff. And then lo and behold, I, I, I started saying the same thing again and she was like, good with that again, you know? And then I said it again and it was like, it was good. It was like, I could tell her the same thing every day, virtually verbatim and she's like, ah, oh, I feel so much better, thank you. That's so encouraging, oh, you know. And you know what? We're all the same way, aren't we? We don't need new material, but when we just hear words of encouragement, it's just so edifying. What if we as a church just fanned out over this island this week and encouraged people that we knew? Instead of just noticing people in the paper that have done great things, why don't you get, a, get on the phone? It's a small phone book. You know, we don't have that many people with the same last name unless it's Rivera or something, you know? That's for my Rivera friend in here. But why, why, not, why not stop people on the street and say, man, I just love what you're doing? Or to the person at the checkout counter, you know, I've never told you, but you're the most pleasant person at this, at this place. I just really appreciate it. You know, I mean, just those little things. I mean, we could start something that could open up a gateway for evangelism just by people responding because they, like, we loved them. We cared about them. It's amazing what could happen. And so Paul does this and he just opens his heart. He encourages the church. Now the Bible tells us that he wanted to go on to, uh, to Syria and then to Jerusalem, but uh, somehow we're not told whether it was the Holy Spirit or somebody uh, that, that informed him, but the Jews had, had conspired against him to kill him on this boat ride going to Jerusalem. 
And you know, it's pretty easy to throw somebody overboard. We, you know, Carnival Cruise, anybody hear about the reports every now and then? Oh, you know, some 21-year-old person is lost at sea. They, you know, a day later they find him. Well, last time they saw him, they were on the upper deck at one in the morning. They'd been drinking and having fun and bloop, you know, they're just gone. That's it, you know? So they're thinking they're gonna get rid of Paul in the same way. So he changes course, goes back through Macedonia, and he takes seven guys with him. Now remember, in this Macedonian vision in, in, in Asia, Asia Minor, he was collecting funds for relief work in Jerusalem who was going through a famine and through the Christians were being persecuted and lost many of their jobs. And so they were taking this offering back to sustain their brothers there. So Paul takes with him seven guys. Very interesting why, and I'll talk about why in a minute, but let's talk about these seven guys just briefly. Uh, Sopater, it means savior of his father. Wow, that's a pretty cool name, you know, savior of your father. And, and, and there was something redeeming about this young man's character and quality of life that uh, caused his parents to name him this. He was from Berea, which we know was one of the towns where people were really uh, solid students of the word of God. And evidently, according to Romans 16, 21, he was a kinsman of Paul. And then we have Aristarchus, who, that means a preeminent ruler or best ruler a native of Thessalonica, uh, went on many of Paul's campaigns in his uh, missionary journeys, and he was a fellow prisoner with Paul. This guy was kind of an aristocrat. I mean, this guy was in the upper echelon of leadership in his city, and yet he gave that up to follow Christ and follow Paul, and he was one of the few guys that actually went to prison with Paul during his uh, uh, time of imprisonment for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we've got Segundus, this guy's got an interesting name. It means, of all things, second. Second. Now, why in the world would anybody name their kids second? You know, number one, number two, <laughs> number three, number four. Well, you know, we think somebody that just really didn't care, or there maybe is another reason, and there really is another reason. Because in Greek and Roman culture, if you were a slave and you had children, those were not your children. Those children were the property of your master. So they weren't really yours. And so there was almost a sense of detachment from children. Even though they, they were responsible for raising them, they, they did not belong to the, uh, to the slave, uh, but to the slave owner. And oftentimes even the slave owner would forbid the, the giving of personal names and they would just number them. And so here we've got this young man who's a slave named Second. And um, we actually have evidence in the scriptures of, of uh, Tertius, whose name means third. He was the one that transcribed uh, the book of Romans for Paul. And then we have Quartus, which means fourth. And he was a brother from Corinth and one of the 70 disciples uh, that was sent out. And so we've got these different guys that are just, these guys are slaves. So we got aristocrats, we've got noblemen, and then we've got slaves. And then we've got Gaius, whose name actually means a nobleman. And this is a different one from the one that we read about in chapter 19. That guy was from Macedonia. This Gaius is from Derby, probably baptized under Paul's ministry and may have been the one that John the Apostle uh, commended for his generosity and faithful service. And then of course, Timothy, which means dear to God. We know a lot about Timothy and we've talked about him quite a bit. I won't uh, spend much time on him except to say that he was a disciple of Paul and one of Paul's most uh, loyal uh, faithful fellow servants in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we have Tychicus, uh, whose name means fortunate or um, uh, lucky. And uh, you ever hear about these uh, animals? I think they just, the Humane Society named a cat lucky uh, that came over in a container 
uh, spent like two weeks in a, in a Matson container, and so they called it Lucky, you know, because it was alive, you know. So I don't know how uh, Tychicus got his name, uh, but maybe he was just lucky to be alive. Um, who knows what he went through as a young boy. But he was there during Paul's first imprisonment, again described as a faithful minister, a fellow servant of Jesus Christ, and uh, uh, probably helped deliver 2 Corinthians to the church during Paul's imprisonment. Uh, uh, tradition tells us that he was also beheaded by Nero. Now, uh, we also have one last gentleman, Trophimus, uh, which na his name means nourishing. And uh, I just think that's a, that's a wonderful name that, you know, people are just fed in your presence. They just, there's something encouraging and nourishing and nurturing about this, uh, this man's life. And um, he is actually a, a gentleman that we're going to encounter again in chapter 21 because there's a riot that's going to take place in Jerusalem because of him, because the Jews think that Paul takes... Uh, Trophimus into the temple, which is against uh, Jewish law, but it didn't really happen, but there's, a, there's near disaster as a result of that, and uh, he also was beheaded by Nero. Now, let me talk uh, just for a minute about the, the, the purpose and the strategy and the reason that Paul has for taking these seven guys with him, because, you know, if you really want to get somewhere in a hurry, you don't take seven people with you. Uh, you, you take one or two or none. You just go by yourself, and that's the fastest way to get somewhere. But I think that Paul took uh, these seven guys for several reasons. Number one is that he, it was a demonstration and a witness of the power of God. I mean, what are the chances that these seven guys from such completely different backgrounds would be together? Uh, you know, I've, I've commented many times here at church, like, you know, I just be, I'll be fellowshipping and having a great time of sharing with a brother or sister in the church and afterwards, and I'll just be thinking to myself, you know, what are the chances that, you know, if we weren't Christians, and I'll just tell them this straight up, if we weren't Christians, what do you think the chances are that we'd even be friends, you know? Uh, it's just, it's an amazing thing what God has done and how he can bring people from every spectrum of life and every race and nationality and he can bring us together and cause this incredible love for each other to take place. Only God can do that. And that's what God was doing with this group of men. And they were witnesses of the greatness and power of God along the way in all of these cities. Probably Paul had them all sharing their testimonies and teaching. It was just a great time. But also these men, most uh, uh, scholars believe that each of these men represent a different church that was sending funds to Jerusalem. And so these churches just didn't send money and write a check, but they sent a rep. And they said, we want you to go and tell them that we're praying for them. We want you to go and tell them that we love them. We want you to go and tell them that we are fighting for them in prayer and that we are with them and we stand with them and we want you to bring back a report of what happened. And so it was like a mission trip. You know, I mean, it was a big adventure for these guys. And uh, I think another reason is that um, it provided Paul with accountability. Accountability because he's carrying a large sum of money. And uh, my guess is that Paul immediately turned that over to some of the churches and said to the leaders of these churches and said, you take care of the money. It provided accountability for him as a traveling evangelist where there's lots of potential for the enemy to come in and, and to stumble him or stumble the church. And so he had this uh, built-in accountability. And really the truth is, is that he was a, it was like a traveling seminary. You know, as he, as he went along, he was teaching these guys and, and downloading all this information about God and about the kingdom of God. And he was just, he was pouring into these seven men who would then go back and be leaders within their own fellowships. And so it was like, it, they were interns, really. It's exciting, the, the dimension of bringing someone alongside and, and helping you in ministry. And that's one of the things I want to encourage you, that if you are involved in ministry in any shape or fashion, that you think about this concept of never doing ministry alone. 
Always bring someone alongside of you. Always include someone else because you can be training and encouraging someone else, inspiring, raising someone else up to leadership rather than simply doing ministry by yourself. Well, after he had done these things, in verse six, we're told that he sailed for Philippi. Uh, five days later, he joined the other, uh, the other guys in Troas and stayed there for seven days. Now, what happens next is quite interesting. The Bible tells us in verse seven that Paul gathered the believers together on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And they, they fu- functionally had church. That's what they were doing. They had church. Now, this is the first record we have in the book of Acts of the church meeting on Sunday instead of the Sabbath, which is traditionally Saturday. It's from Friday night to Saturday night. And that's the, that's the Jewish Sabbath. So these guys were breaking with this very, you know, this is a millennia-long tradition of the Sabbath. Why did they do it? And is it appropriate? Well, I'll tell you why they did it. It's very simple, is that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, and the Holy Spirit was given to the church on the day of Pentecost 50 days later on the first day of the week. And since that time, the church has been celebrating the two most vital, important, life-transforming events that have ever happened on the planet, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the pouring out of his spirit for the work of the ministry. And because of that, since that time, the church has been uh, celebrating these two days. So actually, when we come together on a Sunday, we're, we're memorializing those two events, the resurrection of Christ and also the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so they got together and, and, and they broke bread. Now it sounds like they just ate dinner, but breaking bread is really um, a reference to the Lord's Supper. But for the New Testament church, it involved more than simply uh, you know, coming up and getting the communion elements, sitting down, having a prayer, taking the elements, closing the service with worship. They would have a, like a potluck meal to begin with. And then they'd have worship. I mean, this went on and on. It went on for a long time. They'd have worship and they'd have teaching and sharing of testimonies. And when, when everything kind of would seem to be finished, then they'd have the Lord's Supper and remember the body and the blood of Christ. And so in the context of what's happening here, verse seven, it says that Paul begins to speak to the people, meaning they already had the meal. Now Paul is, is beginning to teach and the word is uh, dialogue. that dialogue. It's a question answer kind of a, of, a, of an environment that's taking place. And the text tells us that because he intended to leave the next day, he spoke a long time. He spoke till midnight. I mean, this went on for six hours. I don't ever want to hear anyone complain about my 50-minute messages again. <laughs> in fact, we actually have a, a, a lot of occasions in the Old Testament and New where people went on and on. Ezra, uh, when they were rebuilding the temple, the people were so hungry. See, this isn't, this isn't the pastor forcing six hours on the people. Nobody's barring the doors. There's a hunger for God. There was a hunger for God in Ezra's day and he got up and he read and the Bible says that from daybreak until noon, they stood out in the, in the courtyard and he'd built a platform for just the reading. He didn't comment on it. He just read the book of the law of Moses. And the people stood there from the youngest to the oldest and they were, they were transfixed because of the word of God. We find the same thing happening in the, in the book of Acts 28. Paul is actually preaching to unbelievers and it says from morning until evening he declared to them the kingdom of God. We're talking like 12-hour shift of teaching. That's a long time. I remember when I, um, years ago, I had the privilege of going with the team from our church to Thailand and uh, 
it was, a, it was an interesting experience. You know, you get there and, and uh, you know, I had a few messages ready. I thought, okay, I don't even know if I'm teaching. I'm just, we're just gonna go serve. They've got pastors there. The same thing happened when I went to India. The same thing happens in the Philippines. Almost any country you go to, you know, they just, they, the worship ends and they said, uh, suddenly you hear your name, you know, Bobosan, you know, or whatever they're calling me in that country. And they say, okay, and suddenly it's like, I've got to teach, you know. So fortunately, I've got a message in my Bible and I, I get up to teach. And then they, they worship a little bit more and then they say, okay, come back up and teach again. It's like, okay, fortunately I've got two messages in, in my Bible and I'm, I'm sitting there pulling it out. And, uh, and then after that, they say, we're gonna take a short uh, break and then you're gonna teach again. And it just was like this in so many places. India was the same way. I went over there with a, a brother from the North Shore, Mike Stangle, great brother. Um, and I'm gonna go with him again in November uh, to India again. And, uh, but you know, I thought he was gonna be the primary teacher. That's what they told me. But no, we get there and they split us up immediately and I've got to teach all day long from morning until like nine o'clock at night with just these little 15 minute breaks in between. And this is the trip I, I lost. I didn't have my Bible, you know, my Bible in my suitcase. Everything was gone. All my notes were gone. And, um, you know, it was just a, it was a marvelous experience. It was unbelievable just allowing God to work. But that's the hunger that this church, the people in Troas had. It's the hunger that Ezra's people had. It's the hunger that, that the unbelievers that Paul was teaching that they had. It's the hunger that God is looking for in the hearts of men and women, that we would have a, 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 just a devouring heart for the things of God. Well, most people were feeling that way, except for Eutychus. And we find that, uh, that Eutychus uh, went to sleep. It, it's interesting, his name um, uh, means well-fated or lucky, but not on this night. He was seated by a window and the Bible says he sank into a deep sleep. And uh, Luke tells us, uh, gives us a little commentary that there were a lot of lamps in, the, in this room. And you know, when you get a lot of, of uh, oil lamps in a room, it just kind of begins to suck away the oxygen. You've, it's stuffy already because you've got all these people um, in, the, in the room. He's had a big meal. He's, it's, he's at the end of a long week. And he, he's been, this pastor's gone on and on and on and just won't stop, you know? And, you know, I have to tell you that my heart really goes out to Eutychus because I am like Eutychus. I have slept my way through more sermons than I can count. I really have. When I was a little boy, you know, I'd go, my parents would go to church. We'd go to church all morning at, at the church they worked at. And then we'd go to church at a Baptist church when I was like six, seven, eight, nine years old. And I just, I just wasn't even interested. I just had no interest at all. And they made me sit in the service. So I perfected the art of sleeping in church while looking spiritual simultaneously. <laughs> and I'm just gonna give you a hint because I know some of you sleep through my messages. And by the way, I'm not offended by that. Just don't like line up chairs and lay down. Um, but you put the Bible on your knee like that while you're sitting and then you, you put your head like this on the Bible and nobody can see your eyeballs. So you just sleep like that, you know? And it, and it really protects you from the, you know, the, you know this thing, that, you know, that can happen. So I cast no stones at this young man. I, he, he, he is me. That was my life for many years as a Christian. And, uh, you know, he, he got sleepy. And suddenly, he just couldn't hang on any longer. And the Bible tells us that he fell to the ground. I'm just imagining he's sitting with his back to the window and suddenly it was one of those things, just a little bit out of balance and that, just that little nod of that 11 pounds of head or whatever it weighs, just tipped him off balance and bloop. And probably a little, ah! And then, and then you hear this sickening thud 
at the bottom of, uh, of this house. Now, I just can't imagine. I, I try to put myself in the Bible as I'm, as I'm reading it to kind of imagine the emotion, but I'm just thinking, you know, what do you do when suddenly you see the kid's legs flip up? Everybody's been watching them, you know. Oh, Eutychus, there you go, you know. You know. And then suddenly, you know, the legs are gone. Ah! You know, and the, his family's in here too. We don't know if he's married or, but his family, it says his family took him home, so his family was there. Can you imagine? The, I, just, I just can't even... I just can't even, this is a Bible study. That really puts a crimp on the, you know, the, the warm koinonia going on in the Bible study. So everybody runs down with hopes that he's okay, but with a sense of reality that he's in deep trouble. You know, I, I decided to do a little research on, uh, on how far a person could fall and still live. And you know, I went on a Google search and you would not believe there are thousands and thousands of pages that tell you how to fall out of an airplane without a parachute and live, you know? And I really learned some things, so I'm fully prepared. I'm gonna lead a class on it sometime <laughs> on how you two can uh, actually pick where you're gonna land. You know, they, sh they tell you how to position your body and, and how, you know, how, what to aim for. And, and I thought, you know, when you land, you wanna distribute the weight as much as possible, so land flat. I was wrong. You gotta land on the balls of your toes and you wanna, you wanna compress and go down and do a roll. Of course, you know, this is as you're falling out of the plane, you're going to be thinking about all this, right? It's like, oh yeah, okay, step two, step three, position, roll, yay, I lived, you know? <laughs> but the thing that hit me about this, uh, this one website, I'm just going to read it to you because it's just, it's, you won't believe it, but this is a direct quote. This is from a, um, uh, from a, 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 a uh, aeronautics division of a company that deals with, uh, with airplanes and disasters and things of that nature. It says, people very seldom survive falls from heights of 100 feet or more. That's about 10 stories. And mortality is high even at heights of 20 to 30 feet. And listen to this next line. I'm not ki I did not make this up. It's always best not to fall at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. No more needs to be said. But when you fall from three stories, you've got to expect significant head trauma. You've got to expect uh, compound fractures and contusions, internal bleeding, internal damage to the organs. This is not something you get up from. Well, the Bible tells us that uh, they went down and he was picked up dead. And, and some people have said, well, he wasn't really dead. He was just kind of not, had the wind knocked out of him. Well, remember, who wrote this book? Dr. Luke. He was a physician. He went down and he used the word necros, which means corpse. This guy was a corpse. So he was mucky dead. <laughs> the Bible tells us that, um, you know, in a variety of places that there, there is a, a, a challenge for us even in this text because I'm assuming most of you aren't going to be sitting at third-story windows. We don't even have very many third-story windows on this island uh, to fall from. Um, but there, there is a spiritual application for us that sometimes we can kind of get spiritually lethargic and sleepy. Other people seem to be so aggressive and interested in the things of the kingdom and we're just kind of mildly so. Uh, we, we're interested, we're there, we show up, but we're just kind of like sleeping our way through uh, the work that God is doing. And I want to encourage you that uh, Jesus even taught parables on this. He talked about the 10 virgins and the, the oil and the lamp and being prepared. And he said, five were ready and five weren't. And when, when the bridegroom groom came, these five that had been sleeping and resting uh, while these others had been working were unprepared. 
And because of that, they weren't able to enter into the banqueting feast of the master. In other words, they weren't permitted into the kingdom of heaven because they'd just been sleepy. They'd been lethargic. They'd been kind of just, uh, kind of just not really very active or, or involved or very engaged. And, and the result is, is that you can actually get to a point where you just kind of fall out the window spiritually, where you're just like, there's no interest at all. Just stop coming to church, stop reading your Bible, just nothing there. And so there, there is a spiritual application to us, even in the, the context of this story, is that God is saying, wake up. Let me read you a little uh, passage from 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. And so God is calling us to this kind of a life of being engaged and, and participating and active. And I, you know, uh, the Bible says again and again, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. And that's not just for unbelievers, but it's also a word of exhortation to believers. And so maybe that's a word that you need to hear today is wake up, we're almost home. There's so much God is doing. God's opening up more doors of opportunity for us to do ministry on this island. We need every hand on deck. We can't have anybody sleeping their way through ministry. God is working. Be a part of it. Get engaged. Not, I'm not the single guys. I'm talking about get engaged with the kingdom of God, with the work of God. I'm not saying don't get engaged, but you know what I mean. So we find that uh, he was picked up dead. In other words, they, they were actually carrying him into the house. And it says that Paul went downstairs, verse 10, and he threw himself on this young man. That's a, like, you know, it's, if anyone has any training in, in, in rescue or an EMT or hospital, you know, you just don't do that. You just don't jump on somebody who's all broken up like that. You just don't do it. It's not becoming. And besides that, if the guy happens to be alive, which he isn't, but if he were alive, you'd, you'd paralyze the guy. He'd be all over. He'd die from you jumping on him. But the guy's already dead. And so Paul, being led evidently by the, by the Holy Spirit, we find this kind of thing happening in the Old Testament, by the way, with Elijah and Elisha. But he just lays on this guy, and the Bible says he embraces him, puts his arms around him, and then he encouraged the believers. Here, parakaleo, the third time. He comforts them and exhorts them. Now, what do you tell somebody to comfort them when their son just fell out of a window in your Bible study? I mean, I just, I can see them. I'm just thinking, Paul, you're boring. You put my son to sleep. <laughs> he fell out the window. It's your fault, you know? But what do you tell somebody whose son just, just mocky died dead right out your window? Well, you tell him he's alive. That would be fairly encouraging. I think that would be comforting. That would build them up. And so that's what happens. He's alive. Well, we, uh, we find evidence of, of these kind of things happening in the Old Testament as well. Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, raised the widow's son from Zarephath. Elisha, his, his uh, uh, pupil, uh, raised the Shunammite's son in 2 Kings chapter 4. Jesus raised the widow's only son in Luke 7. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And Peter raised Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. What do all these things mean? Well, what it means is that God has the power over death. That's all it means. That's what it means. That God is demonstrating and legitimizing these various ministers of the gospel and ministers of his word as true authorities able to speak because they've done the humanly impossible. They've raised the dead. 
And that's what Jesus tells uh, Lazarus' uh, um, sister in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So we've got this incredible event. I mean, this is just crazy. Six hours of teaching, sweet fellowship, a great meal. And, uh, and then Eutychus falls out the window. Man, you know, everybody's heart's going like this. They all race downstairs. He's a crumpled mass of flesh and bone. There's, he's just in bad shape. He's obviously dead. And Paul raises him from the dead. I mean, this is just, this, this is like, this is an emotional, complete emotional roller coaster. It's an amazing event that takes place, but even more amazing to me is what doesn't happen. I like to sometimes read scripture from the vantage point of not only what it says, but what it doesn't say. What amazes me is the casual and matter-of-fact manner in which Paul and Luke deal with this miracle. Lesser men would have launched Humpty Dumpty Ministries International right then and there. Their, their letterhead would have been prepared the next day. They would have had a big tent ministry and they would have had a massive following. Bring your dead, bring your crumpled, bring your shattered. Humpty Dumpty may have fallen off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't fix it, but I have the anointing. Come and you will be healed. But they don't do that. They, it's almost downplayed. There's no attention given to it again. In fact, it's never even brought up in the text. But what does the Bible say that they did? He simply went back upstairs and resumed teaching. How do you do that? <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you manage to pull that off? Well, remember, Paul is leaving. He's not done. He's investing. He's pouring himself out with these, with these Christians. And he talked until daylight. So now we're talking about 12 hours of Bible study slash worship slash fellowship slash homily because this is the from from six in the evening until 12 midnight it was a dialogue but the word that's used from 12 midnight until six in the morning is the word where we get our word uh, homily from or someone giving a speech and so for six more hours uh, Paul talked I'm assuming no one was sitting by the window uh, after after midnight but I want to tell you I'm challenged by this story for two reasons the first reason I'm very challenged by this story is I'm challenged by the hunger of these people to listen to the word of God. I, I really, I, I, I had to confess and ask God to re forgive me and, and fill me with a new hunger because as much of a hunger as I have, it's not nearly the kind of hunger that these people had. These people were willing to sit for 12 hours and fellowship. And I, and I think to myself, you know, I, I, my quiet time is so long and it's like, okay, that's enough, you know, got to move on with the day. And, uh, and I think, okay, that's enough. And I'm not saying it's not enough, but I'm just saying it really challenged me to, to not compare myself with other people, but to look at the hunger that I see in scripture for the word of God. And my question to you is, how hungry are you really for God? The second thing that really challenged me was Paul's enthusiasm to feed these people God's word. I was very challenged by that. Because, you know, like when I was in India or these different places, I'm thinking, okay, man, I need a break. You know, can I, is there a nap time? Do you guys take a siesta around here or anything? Uh, you know, is there a time for me to rest? But Paul didn't want to rest. And, and it was easy for these guys because they were getting this major, massive dose of Paul, but then Paul had to move on and then he just kept doing it day after day, night after night. The Bible tells us that he had sleepless nights and, and uh, times with, with no food and he went hungry and all these things. Why? Because he's just so committed to teaching the word of God. Paul didn't glamorize or capitalize on this miracle for, I believe, one particular reason, because believers aren't sustained in their faith by nonstop miracles. They're sustained in their faith by the teaching of the word of God. And so he taught them the word of God. 
To get a bit of his passion here, we can uh, find it in Colossians chapter one, verse 28. He says, we proclaim him, referencing Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Listen to this final verse. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. See what's happening? He's pouring it out and relying on God for the strength to do the work. I'm challenged by those two things, the hunger of the church and the passion of Paul to pour out and to give out as an offering and a sacrifice to the growth of these young believers. Well, the end of the story tells us that after all these things were finished, the family took this young man home alive and it says they were greatly comforted. The fourth use of parakaleo. They were built up. They left this meeting already comforted and encouraged and then devastated and then comforted and then sent out encouraged again. As I was thinking about uh, the applications to my own life, I, I thought to myself, the first thing is, Bob, are you spiritually asleep? You might look alive compared to maybe somebody else, but in God's eyes, are you really awake? Are you really at the helm here? Are you really paying attention? Or in my case, I was thinking to myself, do I just give God kind of parts and pieces of my life and then these other parts are mine for how I want to use my time? I was thinking about this this last week because I've had more things that I'm involved in and doing that I've had for a while and I don't have a lot of time to rest. And so I was thinking to myself, I need, I need to rest. I need to have, I need to, you know, I need to do something uh, to get rest. And then I, I looked at Paul and I'm almost embarrassed at, you know, these feelings because I'm still getting a good six, seven, eight hours of sleep. Um, yeah, is that long? That's a long time? Okay. Um, so I, I should go with four? No, I'm not going with four. You may need four, but I need eight. Um, but I, I was just thinking to myself, how, how, how spiritually alive am I really? And, and maybe that's a question you want to ask yourself as well. And then the second thing I, I thought of is that, you know, the bruised and broken parts of my life, are they really healed? Have I really brought them to God? Or am I just kind of existing with the help of all the king's horses and all the king's men and satisfied with just leaving, leading kind of a, a crumpled life at the bottom of the wall, uh, not really having experienced the embrace of Christ bringing a total healing to my life. You know, there's a, a, a verse that I'd like to read to you and I'm, I'm almost finished. But in, in Isaiah 61, nobody, is anybody falling out? Don't, don't tip over, don't fall down. But let me read this to you. A prophecy about Jesus Christ. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted today? It's part of the reason why Christ came to proclaim freedom for the captives. Anybody in debt here? <laughs> Might as well, it's just like being captive. And release from darkness for the prisoners. Are you uncertain where to go, what to do next? Are you lost? Jesus came to bring you to the light. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to let you know that he came to bless the day of vengeance for our God, that he will bring justice to those situations where you don't have justice to comfort all who mourn. Have you suffered a loss? Are you broken over the loss of a father or a mother or a friend that you, know, you just haven't gotten over? Maybe they died years ago. God says he came, he sent his son Jesus to comfort those that mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Isn't that wonderful? Man, my life was, a, was kind of an ash heap before I came to Christ and he transforms it and continues to do so. 
and the oil of gladness instead of mourning. He really wants us to experience joy. That's what Christ came to offer. And a garment of praise instead of a garment of despair. These are the things that Christ came to do. And listen to the final phrase. They, referring to you, the followers of Jesus Christ, the mighty ones of God, this is what the Bible says, you will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is your destiny. This is your calling. And the God of all comfort is reaching out to you today. And he's saying, let me comfort you. Let me encourage you. Give me the brokenness. Give me the shattered dimensions of your life. Let me embrace you. Everyone else may say it's a lost cause. Everyone else says it's dead. It's necros. You're a corpse. The situation is finished. And God says, wait. I am capable of doing what no man can do. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Bring to him your brokenness and God will heal. And out of that miraculous work that he does, he will use you to parakaleo, to comfort, to exhort, and to encourage others who like you have suffered and yet who through you will receive the comfort of God. I'm encouraging you today to encourage people. Encourage your spouse, encourage your children. Encourage people sitting next to you. Encourage people at work. Encourage your boss. Encourage your competitor. Encourage people you disagree with. Encourage people that you love. Encourage people that you don't even really get along with. Find something but begin to manifest this very important trait of the truly born again church of Jesus Christ. And God will use you and bless you and you will carry with you the fragrant aroma of Christ leading people to the Savior. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word and God, we're asking that you would cause it to live in our hearts. Father, we're asking that you would comfort I pray specifically that you would comfort those that are broken today, who their lives are shattered, maybe of their own sin or the sin of others or just circumstances, but they're shattered this morning. And though all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put their life together again, there is one who can, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you are powerful and you are mighty, and I'm praying, Jesus, in your name and by the power of your name that you would bring to life that which has died in us. Cause us to hunger for you more than ever before. Cause us to teach and to long to be with the people who love your word. God, cause us to have an influence and give us a heart of encouragement and a heart of blessing and give us an overflowing love, even as Peter said in his book, that now that you have received this deep love from God, love one another deeply from the heart. And so God, may your church be marked by love by faith and by love that spring from the hope that we have stored up for us in heaven. And we're almost home. We're almost home. And we encourage one another with these words. In Jesus' name, amen.